Turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, we'll be looking at 1 Corinthians 11, verses 2 through 16 today. 1 Corinthians 11, 2 through 16. Let's go ahead and begin in a word of prayer. Lord, we come before you acknowledging as we study this morning at 9 o'clock our desperate need for you. We recognize that we need Christ, we need the gospel. We recognize that apart from you, we can do nothing. We can't even breathe, we can't even think clearly. We can't reason, we can't speak, and certainly we can't be sanctified apart from you. You've commissioned us in your word to preach your word in season and out of season. And the text in front of us today is a text that is out of season. And I pray that you might do what you always do with your word, and that is uh, the promise that we have that it will not return void. And so I pray that you would strengthen us as a church through the text in front of us. I pray that you might encourage us, you might rebuke us, you might do the work that you do and only you can do through the sufficiency of Scripture, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. It is with no small amount of irony that we come to this passage in front of us in 1 Corinthians 11 today with the realization that this past Tuesday, was uh, on March 8th, was International Women's Day. And I want to read to you um, from the website internationalwomensday.com where they said the following as a tag on the front page of the website. Imagine a gender-equal world, a world free of bias, stereotypes, and discrimination, a world that's diverse, equitable, and inclusive, a world where difference is valued and celebrated. Together we can forge women's equality. Collectively, we can all hashtag break the bias. And we could probably talk about that statement for a long time, but one of the statements of interest that I would like to focus on is the statement where it says this, a world where difference is valued and celebrated. I agree with that. And it is with no small amount of irony, again, that the spirit of our age is not trying to celebrate the differences between men and women, but rather to erase them. We can and should celebrate women. I'm not particularly fond of all these Sons Day, Father's Day, Women's Day, Men's Day, whatever, okay? But we can and should celebrate women by celebrating the God-given differences and distinctions that he has put into the created order. We should celebrate what God has done. And God has created us to not be the same. We want men to be men. We want women to be women. We want to cultivate masculinity as men. Women to cultivate femininity 
And the differences between us ought to be celebrated because they come from the mind of God. We ought to rejoice in the strong protection of a man and the gentle and nurturing care of a woman. These are good things. In many ways, this issue is the issue of our day, or at least it is a big one. We ought to reject the world's drumbeat that a woman can be a man and that a man can be a woman. Today's text is the head-covering text, 1 Corinthians 11. And while this text does deal with the external issues or external practice, it touches on issues that run much deeper than merely the external Namely, differences between men and women going all the way back to the creation event itself and grounding these theological principles in the creation event. And so we will deal, Lord willing, with this text today on two fronts. We are going to deal with the issue, the external practice of the head covering itself. Is this practice for us today? And second... There is the issue of the underlying biblical and theological principle, and so we want to deal with both the theological foundation, the theological principles, and the external practice, and see what Scripture has for us. But first, as we continue on in our introduction, I want to make a couple of observations that I think will be foundational for this study today, and that is simply this. Men and women are different, okay? We are distinct from one another. This distinction is expressed primarily in two ways. Men and women are distinct in our natures, and men and women, we are distinct in our roles, Regarding our natures, it is pretty easy to see this. We are physically distinct from one another. Women can give birth and men cannot. We have different bone structure. You can dig up bones in the past, and all you have are bones, and you can tell if it's a man or if it is a woman because there are differences. We have different body parts. We have different physical capabilities. On the whole, men are stronger than women, And additionally, we are distinct by uh, nature and our temperaments, our dispositions, and our emotions. Women are better equipped for nurturing than men are. And I, on one uh, sense, have to apologize for talking about kindergarten biology, but our culture has forgotten these things. Very simple, straightforward aspects of creation that God has placed here. Regarding a distinction in roles, Scripture and nature both teach us on this subject. In Genesis 2, God says that he created woman to be a helper for the man. In Deuteronomy 22, he says that men should not dress like women and women should not dress like men. In Proverbs 31 and Titus 2, we are taught that women are to care for their households. 1 Corinthians 14 and 1 Timothy 2 provides the roles of men and women in the church, specifically in regard to the pastorate. Nature gives us different roles, 
and that there is a physical and emotional difference between men and women. Nature teaches us that women are the nurturers because they have been equipped physically for that task. They give birth and they nurse children, tasks that men cannot do. Clearly, we are not the same. Clearly, we are not and cannot be equipped to accomplish the same tasks with the same amount of efficiency. And these differences are good because they come from the Lord. And though he may try, a man can never be a peak female and a woman can never be a peak male. Even surgeries are not able to bring us fully over into the other gender. In fact, surgeries or anything is not able to bring us at all to any degree into the other gender, oftentimes leaving people scarred for life instead of any kind of significant change. And so we ought to celebrate the differences between us and seek to conduct ourselves in ways that reflect our differing natures and our differing roles. And this distinction is part of what we will see today. Now before I, I, we get to the text, I want to share one more thing uh, with you. And I, I was trying to process whether or not I should um, give you this list that I'm going to give you. But perhaps maybe it will be helpful and perhaps not, I don't know. Um, but first, I'm going to give you a little spoiler today, okay? Um, I, the spoiler here is that I don't think that the head covering is for today. I think that it was a custom of that day, and it is the way in the first century that the theological principle was expressed, and that this theological principle needs to be expressed today in perhaps a different way, and I'll give you some examples of that at the end, okay? But I do want to share with you that there are a number of theologians who do believe that it is for today, and we tend to, to think that this is primarily an Anabaptist practice, or some of us may fall under the impression that is only the theological lightweights that believe that the head covering is for today. And I'm just going to give you a list of some names of people. Uh, I, I called this list way down because I just wanted to give names that I thought you would recognize. It's a lot longer than this. But here are some folks that you would probably recognize that uh, believe that it is for today. You have uh, Dr. Michael Barrett, Joel Beakey, uh, D. Martin Lloyd-Jones, John Murray, Dr. Ian Paisley, Charles Ryrie, R.C. Sproul Sr. and Jr. both, Alexander Strauch, Milton Vincent, wrote the Gospel Primer, H.A. Ironside, A.W. Pink, uh, Mark Minnick, and the list could go on and on and on. There's a lot of people who have wrestled with this text and say, I think this is for today. And so one of the things I want to encourage us with is to come up to this topic with an incredible amount of grace, and I want us to be a church that does welcome those who do believe that this is for today, even if you don't believe that particular view. This is not just an Anabaptist practice. Uh, I have seen in recent days a resurgence uh, in the Reformed camp in favor of this practice, and I think it is increasing in our culture in many ways. I bring all this up, perhaps this is maybe a little bit of a rabbit trail, but I bring it up to say that we need to seriously wrestle through this passage and not just be dismissive of anything that we come across in Scripture because we think it's obscure or outdated, but seriously taking the text at face value. What is Scripture 
teaching us. So let's go ahead and read the passage uh, together. This is 1 Corinthians 11, beginning in verse 2, going through verse 16. Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I deliver them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head, but every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man was not made for woman, but woman for man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman, and all things are from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him, but if a woman has long hair, it is her glory? For her hair is given to her for a covering. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. And we begin here in verse 2 with a statement of... uh, um, a positive statement by Paul where he says in verse 2, uh, Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. As Paul is leaning into a corrective section in 1 Corinthians 11, and remember this is an occasional letter, and so Paul is quickly jumping from one topic to another. We just ended from chapters 8 through 10, a very lengthy section on freedom, on Christian freedom, on the conscience, and how we are to think through those issues. And now, with a sudden abruptness, he just goes right on to the next topic and addresses one after the other, after the other, after the other. And so he begins this new section, this new corrective section, with a little bit of a compliment here. Uh, They had been, in general, listening to him regarding traditions, but there are some things that uh, need addressing, and he uh, addresses those for us in verse 3. And he simply says this, I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Now, this is a theological principle that is going to give meaning to his teaching on head coverings. He simply gives to us biblical hierarchy, and the hierarchy is like this. It is God, Christ, husband, and wife. Now, a couple of observations to make on this biblical hierarchy that he gives to us, and that is this. First of all, this relationship between God and Christ is uh, a relationship of submission, but it is not a relationship of inequality. The Son and the Father are equal to one another. 
The Son is the Father. The Father is the Son. They, they are God. This is the Trinity. And yet, even in this relationship of complete and total equality, there is submission. And so, to give you some examples of this, you have in Mark 14, 36, Jesus says, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Christ submits to the Father. In John 4, in verse 34, Jesus says, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. He is submitting to the will of his Father. John 5, 30, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Again, Christ submitting to the Father. 1 Corinthians 15, 38. Um, I'm sorry, 15, 28. I have the wrong verse on the screen here. 1 Corinthians 15, 28 says this, When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. And so you have in here kind of an uh, example, and the reason that Paul brings both of these um, relationships to bear is because there is something similar going on here. Christ is under the Father, the wife is under the husband, and in both situations you have equality, you have uh, a wife as equal uh, uh, before God as her husband is, and yet in the same way you have this relationship of submission. And so we saw some for Christ submitting to the Father, and now we have the same thing with wives. Ephesians 5.22, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body and himself its Savior. Titus 2 and verses 4 through 5, so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. And you have this as well in 1 Peter 3, verses 5 through 6. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Now, the way that this sentence is constructed in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 leaves us in a predicament if we want to reject this doctrine. If you come to this text and you say that I want to reject the way that this is uh, given to us in Scripture, if you want to reject that the husband is the head of the wife, then you also must reject that God is the head of Christ. He's putting these two things together, and it's not a pick-and-choose thing here. It's you either get both of them or you get none of them. And if you get none of them, then we're dealing with, is Scripture even inspired by God? And we're going down that path. It's all or nothing. And this passage really leaves us with no choice. I mean, just consider what happens if you, if you say that this, uh, we're going to upend this, and this is not uh, the way that it ought to be, then you also are saying that Christ doesn't submit to God, and if Christ did not submit to the Father, then what happens? Salvation is impossible. You undermine, you destroy salvation. Salvation is hinged on hierarchy and submission. Salvation comes to us 
through hierarchy and submission. In the same way, if you want to destroy the submission in the Trinity, then you destroy submission in the marriage relationship. There are disastrous results there too. When God's design for headship and submission in the home are ignored, it results in the absolute destruction of the family, which, by the way, will eventually result in the destruction of society. Does that sound familiar at all? Are you familiar with any societies that are being destroyed right now? <laughs> okay. It started in the home. Okay. We are reminded of the importance and the significance of hierarchy in the home. Proverbs 27, a continual dripping on a rainy day and a quarrelsome wife are alike. To restrain her is to restrain the wind or to grasp oil in one's right hand. Or Proverbs 19.13, a foolish son is ruined to his father and a wife's quarreling is a continual dripping of rain. Let me just remind us here and specifically let me remind the wives here of something. You have a tremendous, tremendous capability to set the mood, the tone, and the atmosphere of your home. You have more power to do that than you realize. One might go so far as to say that the mood of the wife is the mood of the home. You can use that, wives, to build up your home, or you can use it to tear down and demolish your home. You know this is true. There is some truth in the old adage, if mama ain't happy, ain't nobody happy. Okay? There is truth to that. And there is an ability that you have to set the mood and the temperament of your home. You can adorn your home with grace, or you can tear your home down with a sour spirit and a sour mood. Everything breaks down when the family is not functioning as God intended. And by the way, there are endless studies that demonstrate this. We don't need the studies because we have Scripture, okay? But there are endless, endless studies that prove that one man and one woman, monogamous marriage, committed to each other for life, is the best possible situation for the well-being of your family. I'm just going to give you one of them, and there are hundreds of them, okay? This chart, I don't know if you can see it up there or not. This was a study done recently. This is percent distribution of college, select college graduates by family type, okay? 75% of college graduates come from married birth parent homes, and then it goes down from there. Birth and step-parent, 7%. Divorced mother, 7%. Separated divorced dad, 2.5%. Never married mother, 2.1%. Separated mother, 2%. Widowed mom or dad, 1.4%. Adoptive parents, 0.8%. Cohabiting birth parents, 0.5%. Grandparents, 0.4%. Foster parents, 04 I mean, again, we don't need this. 
but God's plan for the home works. Again and again and again. Everything says that the most successful children are children that come from biblical families, biblical homes. You can look the same up with jail statistics. It's, it's the opposite of this for people who are in jail. Um, the divine order of the family is responsible for human flourishing. You want a family to flourish? You want a culture to flourish? It is God's blueprint that works. Nothing else works. It results in destruction and despair. This is why the world is doing everything it can right now to dismantle the family. The world right now has its crosshairs on your home. One writer remarks on Karl Marx's view on church and the family. He says this, By Marx's account, the family and the church exist to cultivate, reinforce, and perpetuate bourgeois values. Okay? The church and the family is the enemy of the world right now. And this is why it's trying to remake it to be everything it possibly can be. You can see that the spirit of the age today, which is heavily influenced by Marxism, by neo-Marxism, wants to destroy the divine order in the family. This headship principle then has implications. Okay, this is not just theory out there. Okay? There are implications to this headship principle in the conduct of the home. It has implications for how you run your family. It has implications for your behavior in the home. And it had implications for first century Corinth. Now, this is what Paul says the implications are. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. Okay, quite foundationally here, the head covering shows submission. That's what he's saying. He's saying, here's the created order, theological principle, foundational principle, and you want to show that to our culture. You want to show our culture that you believe this, then wear the head covering. That's how you demonstrate that you believe this in this culture. For a man to do that, he talks about it's disgraceful for a man to do this, for a man to wear a head covering would be to say that I believe the roles are reversed. I believe that as the man, I am the submissive one, and the wife is the leader. And you're communicating to your culture a reversal of roles. That is why the men are exhorted not to wear head coverings in this text. But women, to show their submission, are to wear head coverings. So dishonoring was it to go without a head covering that a woman without a head covering, as Paul says here, may as well shave off all of her hair entirely. <laughs> okay, you want, to, you, want to, you want to tell the world that you don't believe in divine order? Then just shave off all your hair altogether and just do that. Women in the first century who did not wear a head covering were essentially first century feminists. 
They were the ones saying that we don't believe in God's created order. Or we might say that they were an early form of the women's liberation theology movement. There is nothing significantly spiritual about a piece of cloth on the head, but Paul connects it to the underlying doctrine. He says that this head covering is demonstrating the headship principle from the beginning of Genesis. He doesn't pull this out of thin air. He says this is grounded in Genesis. And he pushes this principle even further. He says this, For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God. But woman is the glory of man. For man was not made for woman, from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. Now, verses 7 through 9, um, this would get Paul stoned if he said this today. Um, he says that the male is the image and glory of God, and the female is the glory of the male. Why does he say this? Because man was made first, woman was made from man, and perhaps at the very height of offending our modern sensibilities, Paul says without any apology, woman was created for man. Where do we see this? Well, Genesis chapter 2. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone, for I will make him a helper fit for him. God made man first, then he made woman for the man, for the purpose of being a help to him. And you know what? That's good. And to be quite frank with you, I am growing tired of the modern obsession to apologize for God everywhere we turn. We can say this without apologizing because God said it. If God said it, then it's good. If God created it that way, then it's good. There's a quote here that I'm going to give to you that is often attributed to Martin Luther, uh, but he probably didn't say it. Actually, there is a, a quote that is kind of close to this uh, that Luther said. Um, so I don't know who said this, but it's a really good quote, so I'm going to put it up here. It says this, If I profess with the loudest voice and clearest exposition every portion of the truth of God, except precisely that little point which the world and the devil are at that moment attacking, I'm not confessing Christ, however boldly I may be professing Christ. Where the battle rages, there the loyalty of the soldier is proved, and to be steady on the battlefield besides is mere flight and disgrace if he flinches at that point. What is this saying? This is saying that if the world is waging war on this particular front, we need to run to that front as Christians and fight on that front. The world, the world is fighting on this front right now. Now is not the time to flinch 
in regard to teaching what the Bible teaches on gender, on sexuality, on men and women. Why? Because in this very moment, at this very time, this is what the world and the devil are attacking right now. This is where the battle is raging right now. Our families and our homes and our society is at stake. And of course, the souls of all these people. During the days of American slavery, that was when the church needed to rally together on that front. That was when the church needed to rally together and say, man-stealing is a sin against God. Today, our battle line is in a different place. We need to rally the troops here and fight here. And we must do so without apology. If you apologize, you have already relinquished to the enemy. We must adorn the divine goodness that has been given to us in gender distinctions. We must celebrate and highlight the goodness and the beauty of a godly home where there is peace and there is safety and there is protection and there is love and there is adornment of everything that is good and there is rebuke of everything that is evil. The distinction between men and women goes all the way back to creation itself. It goes back before the fall. Some people say, well, this didn't happen until after the fall. But that couldn't be further from the truth because Paul grounds his argument in creation itself. This was here before the fall. And so Paul grounds his argument in creation, and then he grounds his argument in the angels. And he says this in verse 10. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Um, what in the world is he saying here? <laughs> this is why you should wear a head covering, ladies, because of the angels. Okay, moving on now. <laughs> what about them? And this has been, as you can imagine, a source of a lot of discussion and debate and trying to figure out exactly what he meant here. Um, and so I'm going to tell you what I think is going on here, but I am going to tell you that I'm not totally sure what's going on here. Um, out of all of the numerous proposals for what he possibly could mean, I would suggest to us that the most likely reason he says this is because the angels, and let's talk about not the fallen angels, but let's talk about the good angels. The good angels are the most submissive creatures in existence. The good angels submit to God like that. God says here and they're there. God says there, and they're there. They don't hesitate. They don't flinch. God doesn't have to tell them twice. God doesn't have to remind them of anything. The, the good angels who have not fallen are immediately and instantly joyfully submissive in everything. Okay? And because of that attribute about the angels, one of the most offensive things that they can see is someone who is not submissive. And so when an angel kind of looks down and sees a wife 
being unsubmissive, they say, that disgusts me because I delight in my submission to my king. Even the angels submit to God. Even Christ himself submits to the Father. You offend us because you refuse to submit to God's created design. So wear a head covering because of the angels. And if you want to discuss about different options later, we can do that. (laughs) But I think that's probably the most convincing one. Paul continues in verses 11 through 12 and says this, Nevertheless, the Lord, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman, and all things are from God. Now, this is an important couple of verses. They're all important verses, okay? But this is important in the sense that it gives a clarifying reality so that nobody misinterprets Paul, okay? You cannot conclude that men don't need women, Okay, by the way, in this culture, um, to give you an idea of um, the way that Scripture really rescued women from what they were going through in that day, a common Jewish prayer was, God, thank you that I'm not like this, thank you that I'm not um, a Gentile, thank you that I'm not a Samaritan, and thank you that I'm not a woman, Okay. This is what Jewish men would have prayed during this particular time, not all Jewish men. And so what's going on here is Paul is saying, you cannot conclude that men don't need women. You cannot conclude that men are better than women. And there is absolutely no room for abusive men in God's economy. The headship principle does not translate to you can be an authoritarian dictator in your home and abuse your wife and your children. It does not follow. There is no logical connection between those two things. The husband is to treat his wife with tender care, being aware of her vulnerabilities and protecting her. Man is not permitted to be a dictator or an authoritarian. His authority is a derived authority, as all authorities are. His authority is not the final say. It is the word of God. He must remember Galatians 3.28. This verse really um, addresses a lot of the issues of today. We saw this when we went through our study on social justice with um, ethnicity, but this also addresses this issue here. He says, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. This does not, the hierarchy does not translate to worth or value, and we know that because of this verse, but we also know that because he started off by saying, God, Christ, man, woman. He's, there's, there's equality within, between God and Christ, and so therefore it applies the same way here. There's an order to it, but it has nothing to do with you're worth less somehow because of this, or you're worth more because of this. We all stand um, before uh, God on equal footing at the cross. Abusive husbands and abusive men will give an account 
to God. Finally, he gives an example from nature to affirm his position. He says, judge for yourselves. It is, pro- is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him, but if a woman has long hair, it is her glory, for her hair is given to her for a covering. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. This is an argument from nature, okay? Now, just to demonstrate to you how much God has ingrained in nature that we don't even perceive or pick up on, he said 2,000 years ago, it's obvious that men in short hair, men in short hair go together and women in long hair go together. And here we are in 2022, and that's the same perception we have. Why? Because it's built into our nature. We understand this intuitively uh, through God's common grace. It is one of the things that we can learn through nature regarding gender distinctions. His final statement then is a statement to remind us not to be contentious about this issue. He says, if you want to be contentious, we don't have any other practice available. (laughs) This is is what all the churches are doing. the, the churches of God don't have any other practice. Don't be contentious about this. This, this, is, this is what all of the churches of God are doing. We don't have any other option for you. Stop being contentious and you follow this practice too. All right, so where do we go from here? Everybody wants to know, when they come to this text, is it binding today that women would wear head coverings. And I gave you that list of theologians at the beginning to demonstrate that this disagreement over the issue of head coverings is not just between theological heavyweights and theological lightweights. This is between heavyweights themselves. It is also not merely an Anabaptist thing. This goes cross these lines, and we have to ask ourselves what Scripture is teaching. And so the first thing I want to do is I want to exhort us here to be gracious to those who may differ in this area. We just finished chapters 8 through 10 on Christian liberty and on conscience issues, okay? And so the first thing that I want to do is remark that we need to be gracious to those who would hold a different view. Quite frankly, the vast majority of our church, at least by your behavior, uh, you're demonstrating that you don't believe the head covering is for today, okay? Um, And so those who might come into our church who would believe that the head covering is for today would come here being in a minority position, and I would like to encourage us that if that happens, that we are to welcome them with grace, with love, and without any sort of rebuke at all. They are doing absolutely what their conscience tells them they must do to honor Christ and to show the headship submission principle. And so we love them, and we encourage them, and help them to flourish here at Crossview Church, okay? That's first. 
Now, most of us, I'm going to take a guess here, and I'm going to guess, maybe I'm wrong, but I'm going to guess that most of us in here who do not wear the head covering, most women here who do not wear the head covering, is probably not because you did a thorough, exhaustive, in-depth study of this, but it's because you just don't want to. (laughs) And I get that. But we have to, as believers, derive our practice and our behavior from Scripture. Okay? If you are a woman and you are unsure what the Bible teaches about this, and you are thinking to yourself, I might be sinning by not doing this, then what did we learn from the conscience passages in 8 through 10? You need to do this until your conscience says otherwise. Okay? Because now you are sinning against your conscience, and when you are sinning against your conscience, you are sinning. Okay? Your reason for saying, I think this is a custom, has to come from the text itself, not from your emotions, your feelings, your preference, your wants, or whatever. Okay? The issue here in this passage is whether or not the head covering is part of the universal principle. Okay? He includes universal principles here, like headship, hierarchy, women created for man, etc., And furthermore, we know that in first century Corinth, the correct way to express those universal principles was for a woman to wear a head covering and for a man not to wear one. Okay? Um, Are we permitted to not wear the head covering today so long as we express these universal principles in other ways that are culturally appropriate? And I think the answer is yes. Not everyone may agree with me. I think that we can express this principle in other ways. One of the ways that is common in our culture to do that is wedding rings, okay? That is something that is unique to our culture. It is a way of showing that you're married to this particular person. And so that would be one possibility in order to express this. The passage today teaches us to reflect these theological principles in our behavior, okay? In other words, how can you show the world that you believe the husband is the head of the wife? In first century Corinth, the way to do that was to wear a head covering in that culture, okay? How can you show 21st century America that you believe that too? What are some ways that you could show our current culture that you believe in headship and submission. What would be some ways you could do that? Well, I'm going to give you some applications that I think reflect this principle. Number one, dress in distinctively masculine or feminine ways. Do not blur the lines with your dress. Men should have short hair and women should have long hair. Wear your hair in a way that is appropriate to your gender. Wear your clothing in a way that is appropriate to your gender. This is especially pertinent today because they want to blur the lines for us and we need to hold the line instead of blurring it. 
That's application number one. Application number two, dress modestly. Immodest dress advertises your sexual availability to all men. Modesty advertises that you have sexually committed yourself to one man. This includes whether you are at the church or whether you are at the beach. Dress modestly. Number three, women should submit to their husbands, and this is most directly related to this principle of headship. And then finally, just maybe to give you an idea of some of the cultural things that might uh, apply in terms of first century Corinth versus today, women should take their husband's last name, which is an decreasing in practice, by the way. Um, you either have the hyphenated thing, or you might even have a husband take the wife's last name, which is really the husband taking the wife's father's last name, which is a little bit defeating the purpose. Um, but wives take their husband's last name. And then I have one more passage that gives to us some application uh, as well in these principles, and that is Titus chapter 2, verses 3 through 5. You want to say, how can I cultivate these differences, these distinctions, these things that God has created to be good in the home, in church, in community? Well, right from Scripture, Titus 2, 3 through 5, older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine, They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands that the word of God may not be reviled. And that's the last sermon that YouTube will ever put up for us. This is not popular. This is the word of God. Let us rejoice in the gender distinctions that God has created, knowing that he has done this for his glory and for our good. It creates human flourishing. And we will see this, by the way, if our culture does not do an about-face, we will see the increase of the depravity and destruction of America. It is being flushed down the tubes, and it is happening partly because of this very issue, because men and women hate God and hate everything that he has said and want to upend all of that. What our culture needs is a return to Christ. Our culture needs regenerate hearts. And this will provoke families to be biblical families and begin to be the salve that our culture needs to repair itself. Thank you, God, for your grace to us. Help us as we seek to honor you in all things. May you glorify yourself through your word. 
Help us to be people that love you with our whole hearts. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.